Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. This is an unusual episode, but we're living in unusual times. As I record this, it's Friday the 13th of March, and we're talking about coronavirus. My thoughts right now are on a few different things. First, I'm thinking about the global pandemic. I'm thinking about a rising death toll. I'm thinking about health systems being overwhelmed, massive restrictions on movement in Italy and China and elsewhere, mass graves being dug in Iran. It's a scary time. I'm also thinking about closer to home. My mother's immune system isn't great, and I'm worried about her. My kid's school has been canceled for who knows how long, and my wife and I need to fill their days while also focusing on work. She's a journalist, and I'm an investor, and I think now is a time when it's important that we are at our best for our jobs. I'm also thinking about the overall economy, and when I think about what's going on in the economy, one of the first people I turn to for insight is Taylor Graff, who is my guest today. Taylor is the head of asset allocation at Brown Advisory, and I've had the privilege of calling him a colleague for the last two years since NextGen Venture Partners became part of Brown Advisory. Taylor is an incredibly thoughtful person with deep knowledge of trends in the economy and financial markets and how that relates to investing. And today he was kind enough to share his thoughts on the impact of coronavirus as it relates to those areas. Taylor Graff, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Dan. Great to be with you. Taylor, you look a lot at financial markets. You look a lot at historical patterns to try to think about the future. We're now in a moment that may have some historical precedent, may not. But sometimes you get big downturns in financial markets and the economy that are are blips. There's something happens and the world recovers very quickly. Sometimes, and we're, I think we're all to some degree thinking about you know, 2008, 2009 recession. It takes a long, long time. How do you think about the duration of the impact of coronavirus on the economy and financial markets? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. And and in many ways, the duration question, I think, at least from obviously an economic standpoint or a market standpoint, is probably more the question we're focused on than magnitude points. Because, you know, obviously, given how much things are just shut down, the magnitude of, of economic impact will be significant. But as long as markets can kind of see the end, they tend to start pricing in the end pretty fast. Um, whereas right now, we have a situation where the end is, is unknown. So, you know, I think the couple ways we're trying to attack this, and obviously we don't, we don't know the answer, but, but we can come up with some useful conclusions, is looking at the... Uh, the experience of some of the earlier countries that have faced this, um, South Korea and China have seemed to kind of turn the corner after, you know, something in the realm of, of eight weeks. Uh, we have a lot of other countries that will be approaching that in the near future. So thinking about that. But <clears throat> there's also the question of as far as the duration is. How does economic activity pick back up on the other side? And that, I think, is a, is a big question. You know, there's a lot of talk. You know, people may remember this from the financial crisis of a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped recovery. And that's another really important component to the duration question. And it'll have a major impact on, on what the ultimate issue is. 
just because you, know, you think of wider recessions happen, there's a certain duration where things start to spiral, companies start to cut production, cut hours, cut uh, workforce, and then all of a sudden you have a spiral of, of negative economic sentiment that, that drives to, to a much deeper recession than you know the blip that you talked about earlier, which um, you know things like 2011, 2015, we experienced these kind of economic blips that, that ended pretty fast. What indicators are you looking at to try to determine whether it's V-shaped or whether it's U-shaped? I would say the best two indicators that are, you know, well, well, first maybe take a step back. You know, one of the things is if you sort of wait for hard data to come through, you're probably going to miss it. Um, you know, the 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 speed at which things like retail sales, consumer uh, spending, GDP come out is just frankly too slow to to kind of make conclusions on. So we're looking a lot at uh, I would say sentiment indicators and then higher frequency indicators like initial jobless claims is a pretty good one. I, mean, I mentioned in a lot of ways where this can kind of turn to a much more negative situation is if the sentiment among companies comes to a place where they're not just postponing projects, but they're canceling projects. Uh, and if they actually start laying off workers that will show up in that will obviously have a, a, a domino effect on consumer spending. So thinking about initial jobless claims, which comes out on a weekly basis, sentiment indicators like consumer confidence, as well as PMI surveys, which you can get pretty quickly uh, good data from within only a, you know, a week or two lag. Those are the types of things where you can kind of get a pretty fast response as to how things are going and become especially important uh, in times like today, the other thing is, frankly, we're we're just reaching out to um, companies. We're reaching out to our uh, contacts within the industry, to other managers, hearing what everybody is hearing. Uh, and and again, that's just a probably as much what they're concretely saying as as the indications from the sentiment um, that you can glean some indications as to which way we're going to go. We're obviously never going to have perfect information. That's the nature of this business. Um, but if you can glean the probability of likely outcomes, we think we can make a much better decisions uh, for, for our clients. Taylor, I'm curious kind of what you are hearing. And again, with this trying to drill it down on D versus U-shaped and if U-shaped, you know, trying to think about the duration of the bottom of that U, I'll tell you, what we're hearing in the venture capital market, and we're doing something very similar just with this one asset class that NextGen Venture Partners plays in. And that is, we are first looking at company activity, and mm -hmm. our companies are all thinking about ways to reduce their spending. I think you first think about how can you reduce the kind of truly optional stuff like marketing expense. That'll hit the advertising industry, and, and that will have ripple effects. Then you start to think about capital projects that, again, you can push out. You do start to think about hiring and human resources generally, and what do you really need versus what is more discretionary. I think the emerging conventional wisdom, at least as of today, in startups and venture is slow down spend. And of course, if everyone does that, you know, that that's that's the kind of thing that can lead to a recession. Is that what you are hearing in other companies and other asset classes? 
I would say broadly, yes. And what were, I mean, one, you know, again, sort of t- taking a step back to the context that we were going into this situation was one where interest rates had been very low, credit spreads had been very tight for a long time, um, unemployment was very low. And, you know, so in a lot of ways, if capital projects were, were probably as in as good a situation to undertake as possible, uh, you know, money was very free flowing. Um, you just seen corporate tax rates come down. So again, the profitability was there. So, you know, I think you're, you're kind of starting in a place where things were priced as if things were going to be very good. Um, and labor markets were fairly tight. So, you know, in a lot of ways, that's one of the, the backdrops that makes probably the risks a little bit higher to slowing down. Um, and, but what we're broadly hearing is very similar to what you said. Folks are looking at what can we do sort of quickly to just kind of cut costs, not in, but, but things we could ramp back up very fast if this ends quickly. Um, largely just pushing out projects, not canceling projects. Obviously, you have the issues around travel that are probably pretty close to demand destruction, but you know, that's not a huge part of the economy. Um, uh, so, you know, outside of kind of that, that travel space, certainly in energy, you're having similar situations. Uh, it's mostly just pushing it out uh, and marketing sales budgets, but those can be ramped back up pretty fast if this were to end, you know, reasonably quickly. I think this is where the key is, is when do companies basically say, I can't wait any longer. I've got to start making more drastic decisions. It sounds like from our context that, that we're not there. We're not weeks away, but we're probably not months away from companies making those hard choices and, you know, then it starts to, to kind of start down that, that spiral. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just to make sure I heard that correctly, I think we're saying people are cutting the discretionary today and still too early to know whether they're going to cut deeper and whether or not it's going to be real layoffs, that kind of thing. I think that certainly resonates with me as we look at the startup market. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, the other thing is, you know, we, what we're not hearing also is we're not hearing anybody kind of looking. It definitely feels more like they're thinking about risks rather than thinking about opportunities. Um, I wouldn't say from a company perspective. Uh, and, you know, that, that is, is, again, I wouldn't say what you wouldn't, it's exactly what you'd expect. Um, they kind of want to make sure they've they've thought through the risks before they start thinking, you know, are there are there opportunities to, you know, gobble up a strategic acquisition at a at a really cheap price or something like that. Yeah, I'm always mindful of the line, you know, be greedy when others are fruitful. At the same time, I'll acknowledge some fear, or at least speaking personally. And part of the reason I'm nervous is that I am accustomed to. I think you are accustomed to thinking in terms of compound growth rates. At least in the startup world, we're always looking for companies that are seeing exponential growth. At the seed stage, you know, we look at revenue numbers and we say, hey, we want to see 15% growth. And people in the public market say annually, and we say, no, monthly. We've sometimes invested in companies that have that kind of growth weekly. And so when that happens, 
things can move very, very fast. When you're at the earliest days, it's difficult to perceive the difference between linear growth and exponential growth. But as the timeline develops, it becomes a radical difference. And so I apply that to the spread of coronavirus. And that makes me worried. I guess as someone who does think, you know, in terms of compound growth, obviously neither of us are medical professionals, epidemiologists, anything like that. But you've got a CFA, I've got an MBA. So everyone should take what we're saying with, you know, certainly with a grain of salt here. But, you know, how do you respond to this seemingly exponential growth? Well, I think that's a little bit why the cone of uncertainty is enormous. I mean, you're, you're dealing with multiple exponential variables that are, you know, the, the uh, rate of, of, uh, of transmission, you have the rate of mortality, you have all these things that like small changes in, in the expectations creates massively different outcomes. Uh, you know, I read a, a, a study the other day that, that said the, uh, that estimated the number of deaths in the United States would be somewhere between uh, 400 and 1.6 million. Uh, so <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's not all that useful from our perspective, but it gives you a sense of how high the uncertainty is. Um, and, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to try to forecast what happens, but, but we can, you know, get this idea of, you know, a few scenarios thinking through if it's a short disruption with that kind of V-shaped recovery where, where companies bring back that demand pretty quickly back online, consumers, you know, hunker down for, for, you know, several weeks, but then they, they feel comfortable to uh, spend freely. You know, they potentially start looking at, I right, cancel one vacation. So, so now I'll go figure out what I'm going to book next. Uh, a second scenario where it's more short and U shaped uh, where, you know, the, the disruption where we're all literally hunkered down and, in our uh, in our homes for for a while is fairly short, but afterwards everybody takes it really slow to get back to normal activity uh, is a kind of second scenario, and then you have a third where you know what if this this just takes a lot longer to come through the system? We've seen uh, pandemics before that go in waves, um, and and so you know we want to want to thought through, and that gives us an idea of when we're thinking through our investments. What's the return opportunity relative to the risk? And instead of trying to forecast what's going to happen um, and, and kind of come up with where the risk reward is looking good enough to take some actions. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on that question from an asset allocation perspective. Are there areas that are looking more attractive to you either today as we're speaking or any areas that you think are likely to move in that direction in the coming weeks and you know caution everyone we're not making any recommendations here everyone has their own personal situation but maybe you can speak for yourself or maybe you can just give some generalized thoughts on that sure and you know one of the things i think is important is just take a look at liquidity Liquidity has been a bit challenged in this marketplace. We've seen structural changes to the market since the financial crisis that have kind of changed the liquidity landscape in uh, the equity market, but even more so the bond market, um, to the point where you want to make sure that 
if you have liquidity needs or might have liquidity needs, those are sort of in good shape. I think that's that's kind of first as far as thinking about portfolios. Um, but I think if, if you have that in good condition, and that's something that we've been harping on at, at, at Brand Advisory for a long time, then you can really start to look at these opportunities that are coming. Uh, and there are definitely some interesting things happening uh, within financial markets. We are being very patient to try to, to, to jump into anything, but I'll, I'll throw out a few that I think are, are getting pretty interesting. Within the, the fixed income markets, you've seen a pretty big sell-off in municipal bonds. So think the bonds of states, counties, local municipalities. Um, this is a very retail-oriented market where I would say that the investors in it can get a little spooked a little easily. And, um, and we've definitely seen that this week as... Treasury yields have been falling quite significantly. Municipal yields have actually been rising. And, you know, the risk in buying bonds of the state of North Carolina don't seem very high as long as you're not planning on selling it tomorrow. Um, and you're not going to get a huge return out of something like that. But uh, for very little risk, it, it's it's definitely interesting. Uh, similarly, in the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, so it's called TIPS, uh, there's definitely been a, a pretty big dislocation there as the market's gotten spooked about this oil price war. So these are Treasury securities that also pay you the rate of inflation plus some uh, small amount of yield. Otherwise, they're basically pricing in virtually no inflation for a few years. Uh, so that's an interesting one, particularly if you know, the amount of stimulus that comes out of this starts to actually stoke some inflation could be a, 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 a good investment. Um, now, broader in, in the equity market, I would say we definitely are not anywhere close to kind of jumping into the worst affected areas. So you think I mean, cruise lines are down 60 to 80 percent. You know, that's a really hard one to figure out. Energy companies generally down, uh, particularly the the E&P companies down 50 to 70. You know, some things may have structurally changed in some of those markets, and the disruption might be long enough that credit concerns become an issue. I mean, we talked about compound capital. That's one, you know, the, the old Albert Einstein quote, the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. It only works if you eliminate the chance of going to zero. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is also really important is just thinking through, making sure this is a company that can survive the worst outcome. And, but, you know, when we think about the equity market, I think the way treasury yields have moved, the broad equity market is looking quite attractive long-term. Um, you think of treasury yields sub 1%, compare that to where valuations are. We personally think you know, our estimates are equity returns of, let's call it seven, seven and a half over the long term. Compare that to where treasury yields are. That's a, a very good equity return premium, if you will. And uh, But the medium term is certainly pretty hazy. Uh, so we're, we're, we're still 
trying to be patient, trying to be disciplined um, about how we're thinking of it. But some areas of the bond market are kind of a good first step if you want to put some cash to work. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And Taylor, just on the equity side, I just want to drill down because I think probably a lot of folks just as individuals probably thinking more about equities than they are about sort of where to transition fixed income within their personal assets. But on the equity side, it sounds like this time generally may be a good opportunity to buy, right? Not, we're not calling the bottom. Stocks can still continue to slide. But if you have a long-term outlook, that 7% you know, annualized growth is sort of a decent sense of where things will go. And that is true, whether it is a V-shaped or a U-shaped event that we're experiencing right now. Is that a fair way to characterize what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, we are, you know, we always try to think of this a little bit in two ways. There's, there's kind of the long-term picture and a more, more medium-term framework. Um, and the other thing I think is to have a plan. So we've been, we've been, uh, we are, had a plan coming into this of when we want to kind of get more, take steps to get more aggressive in, into equities. We've been, we've been relatively cautious coming into this year. Um, and that I think is, is critical. It's just having a plan for, because it's never going to feel safe. Once it feels safe, the, the, the stock market will have moved in a big way. Um, so if you can kind of have that plan and stick to it and say, you know, this is a good decision for the long term, uh, you know, that, that to me is the key. And, you know, just one other thing I'll throw out is seven and a half percent may not sound fantastic relative to history and certainly not relative to, to venture capital. Um, but, you know, in a world where interest rates have been moved to such extreme levels, you know, I, I think it's it's a little bit the new reality is uh, returns are probably unlikely to be what they've been historically. So a chance to get a pretty attractive return relative to inflation, which is uh, has been fairly low, you know, feels like a good time to at least be taking a few steps uh, into the equity market, knowing that over the next month, the range of outcomes is very wide. Taylor, we've talked about fixed income. We've talked about uh, public equities. Uh, what about uh, private uh, equity? What about uh, venture capital? How do you think about uh, you know investing in those asset classes? You know, in in the coming weeks and months. I mean, I think in some ways this is a pretty attractive time to be making those commitments. Um, I mean, and, and or frankly, I feel even better about the commitments I made over the last six to 12 months. Um, you know, if it's incredibly hard to time public markets. Private markets are you know, even harder, particularly if you're investing in uh, in funds because of the drawdown life of them. But, you know, I think this is in some ways a, a good time to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm putting this into something like a venture capital investment uh, or a growth equity and say, you know, I'm forcing myself almost to not worry about what the next year is going to look like uh, and investing for, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, how many, however many years of return, because 
it is one of these moments where I think there are opportunities there if you can kind of stay focused on that long term picture. And there are probably going to be some pretty interesting things coming out of this with opportunities where other sources of capital have pulled back to find some really attractive investment. Taylor, let's think about potential really bad case scenario. And, and here I'm, I'm thinking about the financial markets as opposed to public health, which is more important, but we're just talking about uh, the financial markets right now. So we've seen a couple of, let's call it hiccups in how the markets just operate in the last couple of weeks. And when I look at the extended recessions of the last century, two of them in particular, one we lived through professionally Mm -hmm. uh, a decade ago, and then what started in 1929, a big part of the cause was financial markets broke. And what do you think the chances of something like that happening that's more than trading stops for 15 minutes? I think it seems low, but you know, it's never... We're, we can't be certain, but I think it's pretty low, and I'll, I'll give a couple reasons why. But <clears throat> it's important that I mentioned the changing liquidity landscape. That has definitely created probably more chance of what I'll call smaller hiccups. Um, but I think the odds of a you know Lehman Brothers style collapse and then the the financial markets sort of go into a major spiral is is less likely. So starting on the first one, as far as the hiccups, you know, we've definitely seen some issues in what's called the repo market. Um, this is a market where companies pledge treasury securities as collateral to get daily loans. Um, and we've definitely seen some issues in, in that market where uh, the the interest rate has, has spiked for a very short period of time. Uh, Two, another area where there's been hiccups is liquidity in the bond market. I mentioned the municipal bond market where trading has been definitely challenging uh, in the in some of the high yield municipal market, which is a, a market that is definitely more niche, fewer players. It's been where basically dealers aren't bidding bonds in a lot of cases. Um, so it's hard to trade. And uh, now that's not to say that there aren't opportunities in those spaces, but if you're in a daily liquidity mutual fund that has uh, a bunch of redemptions that that theoretically the manager has to meet and it's really hard to sell bonds, you can end up in a, in a pretty perilous situation. Now, as far as the more systemic issues, the two things that make us in better condition than either 2007 or 1929 is that uh, household balance sheets are in much better condition and financial system balance sheets are in much better condition than either of those cases, such that the there's essentially just kind of more ability to take a shock um, than there was then. It's also worth saying that the, the Federal Reserve is incredibly motivated to prevent another situation like that, as well as most other policymakers around the globe and on the fiscal side, as well as on the monetary side, they have the will to do it. I think they generally have the resources to, again, prevent that type of situation. 
where the economic impact, on the other hand, their tools are somewhat limited. Um, and so, you know, because of just how, how low interest rates are, how much central bank balance sheet and government balance sheets are extended, uh, that's probably what I, what I worry about more. That's less of the, you know, 2008 Great Depression style recession, but it could be a, you can imagine a fairly severe, uh, I mean, the, the, the recessions of the, of the early eighties were, were a lot deeper than say the recession of, of 2000. Um, similarly, the, uh, so that type of situation feels like it would be harder for the government to provide stimulus to help, uh, stem the tide on unemployment. Whereas, you know, stemming it from banks literally collapsing, I feel like they have the, the resources and the will to do that. Taylor Graff, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com. And now for some important disclaimers. The information contained in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any performance or projections contained herein may be significantly affected by future events. Any opinions, assumptions, assessments, statements, or the like regarding future events or which are forward-looking constitute only subjective views and beliefs, should not be relied on, and are subject to change due to a variety of factors, including fluctuating market conditions and economic factors.